Genesis 32 last week, and so Rain, who I love to hear read, right? I don't know if you're, I don't know uh, if you're, if you're like like me, but uh, man, Rain can, Rain can talk. So um, anyway, uh, he read for us the entire chapter, so we've got a little bit of context as to where we are. The new material that we're going to be covering this morning um, is actually beginning in verse 22 and working through 32. Um, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and, and get that, or um, open up your uh, your app and turn or scroll to Genesis chapter 32. Um, that is where we are going to be uh, this morning. Uh, man, as we explore this passage this morning, I couldn't help uh, but be reminded of what Martin Luther, uh, the great German reformer, had to say about this passage. He um, has been quoted uh, as referring to this passage as one of the most obscure passages in the Old Testament. One of the most obscure passages in the Old Testament for a number of reasons. Now, we've heard it read, but we're going to spend, uh, obviously, a few minutes uh, looking back at our 22 to the end um, in just a few moments. But, as we heard it read for the first time, there is this understanding that there is some really strange imagery um, that we that we see being, uh, being laid out by Moses as he writes um, this chapter can be a bit confusing even. One thing that we must remember, however, as we come into Genesis chapter 32 this morning, is that we are in the book of Genesis. We're in the book of, of Genesis where it is not at all uncommon to see God interacting in some really incredible ways with creation. In fact, we see God uh, interacting in some really extraordinary ways. We are reminded that this is the same God who walked with his creation in the garden. Right? We read Genesis chapter 1 and we think, man, this is, this is some really interesting interaction between God and the world, right? If we remember that, then what we see going on here in Genesis 32 doesn't seem quite so strange. We remember that this is the same God who revealed himself to Abraham prior to his destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, moving ahead in the story a little bit from Genesis 1, moving back in the story a little bit from Genesis chapter 32. This is the same God who revealed himself on multiple occasions to Jacob through visions. And so, yeah, this is an incredible and unique encounter given that we observe a fight between God and Jacob. Uh, Commentator Kent Hughes actually refers to this passage as Jacob's mortal combat, which is both um, incredible um, and also uh, must be understood in its context. Because, well, as right with all or any text, if we try to apply this passage to our own lives without considering how God intended Israel to respond, then we run the risk of gravely misinterpreting what God is saying. Here we find God moving 
His redemptive promise along. This is something that we try to try to focus in on over the course of our time in these 32 chapters. We're remembering what God is doing, how He has set in motion this redemptive plan that He is bringing about His redemptive purposes in the world as He develops a people that He would set apart from all other nations. All for the purpose of as we mentioned the last week, mirroring his heart. Right? We're brought to this realization, that, and we're going to lean into this a little bit further this morning, that, that by way of gospel transformation in our lives, we begin to more accurately reflect the heart of God as we were created to. Mirroring God's heart. That's what we are in the story. Before God would ultimately bring into the world His only begotten Son, who would love God, who would delight in His law, who would love the sinner and submit Himself to their curse so that we, sinners, could receive His righteousness. Let's understand this morning as we come into Genesis chapter 32 that God loves and saves sinners through the sacrifice of Jesus. From this chapter, we see how he brings the needy and destitute to this realization of their need for rescue and redemption. We see God here confronting the proud. Let's see brings Jacob to this point of confession. We're going to see in this morning's passage this this point of, this moment of confession from Jacob, displaying God, his divine strength, both on Jacob and in Jacob. God is displaying his divine strength on Jacob, and he's displaying his divine strength in Jacob. Now, this is something that we've been observing for uh, some time through the book of Genesis, but we do see it come to a bit of a head this morning. We see God transforming a sinner's affections, or what Jacob, what Jacob loves, and who he loves, and, and how he loves. The same can be said for you and I, as we consider the implications of what we read here in Genesis chapter 32, and the way that God continues to bring sinners into this realization of our need, right, for forgiveness, right, and the means by which all of this is accomplished, that being through the person and work of Jesus. We see lives Transformed. We see Jacob's life transformed. We see how Jacob walks. How Jacob physically walks being transformed through this interaction here with the Lord. We see citizenship changed. But this, this incredible after effect of, of Jacob's wrestling. Right, the Lord's allowance of Jacob to now enter into the promised land. We consider the crossover and how you and I connect with and read in light of Genesis chapter 32. And we see that indeed our citizenship is transferred so that we can live where and as God has called us to live. What I want to ask us to do today is to lean in. 
Okay, that's a, a term I think that we use a lot. Um, I say that a lot. I realize that. If you're a tally taker and you do the whole lean in thing, like, don't tell me how many times I say it. It's probably embarrassing. But I want us to lean in today, Bibles open, prayerful, that God's Spirit would bring us understanding and delight. And what God says to us about His nature and our response as we come into Genesis chapter 32. Let's pray together before we begin. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would bring your spirit to work in our hearts. As we sit under the authority of your word, that you would stir in us a passion for your word, resulting in attentiveness and excitement as you reveal yourself to us here. Father, we ask that you would bring repentance and healing, that you would bring conviction and encouragement as we give ourselves and our hearts to you. Father, we love you. We love your word. And we're grateful that you have loved us first. And it's in the matchless name of Jesus, our King, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, big idea of Genesis chapter 32. Part two. Remember, that's where we are. You can check out part one uh, on the podcast. Thanks, Matt, for getting that up each week. Big idea. Here's where we are. Here's what we're going to be looking at. God's unrelenting grace produces the necessary transformation for citizenship in this new land. This is what we observe explicitly from Genesis chapter 32, but we're going to talk about the implications of this statement for our own lives as we continue. God's unrelenting grace. We're saying some things about the Lord. And we're saying some things about His grace as we come into uh, part two this morning. God's unrelenting grace produces the necessary transformation for citizenship in this new land. Now, here's the way that we're going to connect these things. We're going to consider how this is true, both in the life of, of, of Jacob, right, and those whom he would bring into uh, the promised land. And we're going to consider how this is true for you and I as we, as God. God's people look forward to entrance into this new kingdom one day. Reality check. We live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that does not not function as God created it to function. We see the rebellion of man early on in this most incredible book. And the after effects are obvious. We feel them. We see them. We observe them. We are frustrated by them, both in us and in the world. And so what is God doing, and how does he produce transformation that then corresponds with citizenship in this new land? From your and my perspective, this eternal kingdom. Bless you. Two things that we're going to talk about from Genesis 32, part 2, this morning. Make note of these. This will kind of serve to structure our time together. Number one, God's unrelenting grace. God's unrelenting grace, observable through a fist fight here with Jacob. God's unrelenting grace. Number two, Jacob's undeniable transformation. So the unrelenting grace of God results in an undeniable transformation 
in the lives of those who have been so impacted by His incomprehensible grace. Last week, from verses 1 through 22, we saw what is actually the longest prayer in the book of Genesis, from Jacob to the Lord. Again, Jacob desires to see what? Reconciliation. Reconciliation between he and his brother Esau in response to his deceptive actions 20 years prior. We observe Jacob no longer displaying the same type of consistent self-sufficiency. That was a mark of Jacob's life early on. Now, it is not altogether done away with. Notice the language. There's some intentionality in the way that we are saying what we are saying. Here, Jacob is coming to realize that he cannot save himself. An idea, a position that would be solidified at the end of this very long night. All of this leading Jacob to cry out to God for two things, deliverance and salvation. We observe it in part 1 of Genesis chapter 32, and we observe it in part 2 of Genesis 32. And so let's go to verse 22. Let's go to verse 22, and let's, let's begin here. we got a lot of the context from Rain as he, as he read early on. Now we transition. Verse 22. The same night, that being the same night that he sent his, his wife and children, right? He sent them away earlier in the day, and now we find Jacob, nighttime, settling in. His wife and, wives and children have crossed the Jabuk, verse 23, and he took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. There's something that's being drawn out. In light of Jacob's experience here in part two, we see separation being woven back into the fabric of Jacob's story. It's reminiscent of earlier scenes. Think back with me. We did a little bit of this last week. We spent a fair amount of time comparing and contrasting some of the some of the observations from Genesis 28 in light of what we now see in Genesis chapter 32. It continues this week. In Genesis 28, Jacob in his Poverty is promised the presence of God and a return to the land. You remember, he's fleeing from his lot for his life. This is 20 years prior. And as he finds himself on the border, preparing to cross into this, this neighboring region, the Lord appears to Jacob in a vision. And he makes this promise that he would be with him, that he would keep him, and that Jacob would return. 20 years later, Jacob arrives at the border prosperous, desiring to see past sins in his life atoned for. But take note here that we are witnessing the faithfulness of God and his persistence and patience through the life of Jacob. Again, we made note of this last week, but we're within the context of the same story. Right, so we've got to revisit and re-articulate some of the points that we drew out last week. God's persistence and patience are being displayed here in Genesis chapter 32 in the life of Jacob, for the life of Jacob. Now, it took significantly longer uh, than Jacob, or perhaps many of us had anticipated that it would, but let's not run by this point. Go back to the very beginning, and what have we said as we've walked through Genesis chapter 
chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, on and on until we find ourselves here this morning. I mean, humanity has tragically mismanaged what we have been entrusted with. We have sinned against God and rejected His Word. However, what is this all about? God's promise to redeem. As we consider the relentless grace of God from Genesis 32 and His transformation of kingdom citizens, our response to what we read here, our response to what we have experienced is fueled by the supreme confidence that God is faithful to His Word. Okay, so, sub-point. God is faithful to His Word. Right, as we approach this passage this morning, we cannot run past what we observed in Genesis chapter 28. We cannot overemphasize what we observed in Genesis chapter 28. What we see in Genesis chapter 28 and what we observe taking place here in Genesis chapter 32 sets us on a trajectory to understand the way that God works. Who is God and how does He work? Let us be clear. God is faithful to His Word. I love the way that Jacqueline, where is Jacqueline? Jacqueline's right there. Jacqueline mentioned how we are just the people who love God's Word as we prepare to read our call to worship this morning. Man, amen. Right? Like, yes, we love God's Word because we dwell in a world of, of, of vast inconsistency. Our lives mirror this many times. Like, we are familiar with it. And yet, in God's Word, we find His consistent nature. Or we find a God who is, who is committed to the fulfillment of His promises. This sets us on a trajectory to, to again, cast ourselves, to, to, to throw ourselves upon the Word of the Lord, entrusting ourselves entirely to that which He is accomplishing. Does that make sense? Like we can't run past this. We can't run past this idea that in Genesis chapter 28, God promises Jacob that he would return to the land, that he would keep him, and that he would bring him back. And now here we see Jacob returning to the land. Now, what we're going to see through the rest of the story is that God must do this work in Jacob before entrance into will be realized. That's what a lot of this story is about, right? God's work in Jacob. Yet, we must observe these truths that we might confess our supreme confidence that God is indeed faithful. We, here it is, lean in, right? Like, we, we, we lean into Genesis 32 desiring the practice of faith. We, we lead into Genesis chapter 32 desiring in our lives the practice of faith because our God is committed to his word. Right? We are actually saying, you should be saying to yourself right now, hey, Lord, give me faith. Like, give, me, give me faith. Like, help me with my unbelief. Like, give me this, this confidence in, in you and in your word. In your mission, transform my life, right? That everything might be oriented around who you are and what you are doing. This is where we, this is where we are, right? Because God is committed to his word. This is the framework that we possess as we come to every passage in this amazing book. Know that regardless of where we find ourselves, we are this morning in Genesis chapter 32. And next week... 
Lord willing, we will be in Genesis chapter 33, and thus the narrative continues until we are finally finished with the book of Genesis. Right? But know this, whatever is next, the narrative remains the same. Right? Well, wherever we go, wherever you go, right, next, the framework must be a consistent one, and that is this, that God's word rules supreme. Right? That it is true, and that we can bank everything on it. Do we get this? Are you guys with me so far? Are we overemphasizing this point? Are we belaboring this point? Are we beating a dead horse at this point? I don't think so. In fact, I think if I, if I, do, if I practice it, it right here now, a bit of introspection, right? Like, I think that there is this direct connection between seasons of disobedience and sin and my failure to believe in the trustworthy nature of God's word and purposes. The same could be said for you, absolutely, right? There's this connection, there's this, this correlation. It's been true for the life of Jacob, hasn't it? Right? We know that Jacob is to be the heir of the promise. And yet there was this questioning of everything is rooted back. Again, I'm referencing our, our DNA. This is a shameless plug to get connected into a DNA group. Okay, because this past week I was in a conversation with our DNA group, and we were talking about sin, as is a, a common practice among among probably your DNA group as well, right? And one of the things that Seth said that I thought was so was so impactful that I made note of was we were talking about sins, and we go, man, this sin and that sin. There's really just one sin, right? And we find it in the beginning, and it is this failure to trust the Word of God, right? It's where it's all rooted at. If you were to practice, again, for yourself a bit of introspection, right, sin that you are currently wrestling with probably, right, finds a home in this failure to trust the faithfulness of God's word. We can't, I feel like we're just camped out here, and we are, like, unapologetically, like we're camped out here on this point. I mean, because we must, we must get it. Sets a stage or a trajectory by which we approach any and every every book and story, right? As we continue through, it informs a framework by which we see the world and ourselves and our and our need. We're going to move on, but I hope that you guys are, are, are absorbing this, right? That's where we find ourselves through the first, the first two verses, 22 and 23. As we come into verse 24, suspense is building. Jacob's wives and servants, along with his 11 children, have been sent away. And Jacob finds himself all alone. Verse 24. We can't help but feel a bit of Jacob's vulnerability. And we can't, we can't help but to find a bit of ourselves in this all-too-familiar experience that we are reading from the pages of Genesis 32. Even reading this might cause you to stress out a little bit. Because Jacob finds himself all alone. He left in Genesis 28 alone. He had a stick. Right? He came back now in Genesis chapter 32, and we've already articulated that he has been made to prosper, right? He walks in, and we've got multiple camps, and he's sending wave after wave after wave to intercept Esau, right, attempting to reconcile this relationship. But here we find that he is 
He is completely alone again. This is what we mean by by this, this familiar scene being painted in the life of Jacob. Vulnerability. And it is stressful. Like to be alone and to be vulnerable. Man, this is a stressful position that Jacob finds himself in. In fact, I, I did a little bit of a, a little bit of research this past week and came across an article by a PhD named Karen Ardent, contributor to Psychology Today. Now that might sound really impressive, but I'm not a, uh, a frequent reader of Psychology Today. I just wanted to explore this this theme a bit to which. To which Karen (laughs) says this. She says, in my work as a a clinical psychologist, I've seen countless patients over the years with similar pressing concern. The fear of being alone. They tell me about the discomfort they feel when spending time by themselves and their strategies for avoiding being alone. Now we ought to be concerned if we are fearful of being alone. That's not to say that, that there aren't those in this room that struggle with these same feelings and these same emotions. What we are saying is that there ought to be some concern brought about by these fears. Not altogether uncommon, she continues on. They describe spending time with people that they don't actually enjoy in order to avoid being alone with themselves, right? Compulsively talking on the phone to fill the silence. They, uh, they, they, like, automatically, they just turn on the TV when they enter their apartment just to not have to experience being alone with themselves. As I, as I leaned into myself, Genesis 32, this past week, one of the first things that stood out was, was naturally the sense of vulnerability that comes along with being alone in the wilderness, Right? Anybody ever camped alone before? Raise your hand. Nobody. Jacqueline's like, that's stressing me out just thinking about it, right? Uh, There's something about it just being out. um, I can't believe nobody has camped alone. Like, no camp. Anybody camp? You guys are like, I don't even camp. Like, I've been home alone. Does that count? You've been home alone before? Like, I guess you don't necessarily have to be in the woods. You can just be alone and not home, right? But there is something that comes along with this experience that tends to stress people out a little bit. You're in the wilderness and you add the element that, like, I mean, a cougar might pounce on you, right? Like, in your sleep, maul you to death. You don't have to worry about that in your apartment, right? But there are other concerns that likely come to mind. The vulnerability, not only of the dangers that exist outside, but of some of the dangers that we perceive to exist within, right? Being alone with ourselves, not because of any of any external influence, right, that might exercise its will upon us, but simply because our minds are a dangerous place. Right? Our hearts are, are dangerous places. And so there is this, this natural fear and anxiety that comes along for many people with being alone with themselves. Jacob finds himself here totally vulnerable. Jacob finds himself here just cut open and laid bare. He is left with his fear and insecurity. He is left alone with, with contemplation of what that evening alone holds and what the next day, if it comes, might hold. Here's the point. Jacob is vulnerable. When out of the darkness, verse 24, 
he is attacked. <laughs> At which point you immediately begin to legitimize all of your fears leading into this, right? Like, oh, this is exactly why I was freaking out, right? This is exactly why I was stressed in the first place. Because now I have this nameless, silent assailant who has jumped on top of me. (laughs) Who, from Jacob's perspective, seems content on taking his life. Now one thing that stands out from this passage is is the lack of detail that we have. We, We see as we continue reading that this is a struggle that takes place through the evening. Like it goes all night long, but we don't get a ton of of detail as to what it looks like. We can use our imaginations. We know, based on on what we read that follows, that there is um, this, this power that this assailant exercises over Jacob. We imagine that there is this adrenaline pumping night of slapping and pulling and butting and labor breathing. This is like the type of, of fight that like breaks out among among like uh, kids. I would imagine that typically like ends with somebody going a little too hard, right? Somebody else getting mad and going home, right? Like that's kind of what's what's playing out here. All of this serving as a parable for Jacob's entire life. Think about this for a moment. Think about how this night of struggle paints this this picture of the life of Jacob as we have known it. He is contended with his brother. He is contended with his father. He is contended with his uncle. And now, as we would come to find out, he is contending with God. Minutes extend on into, into hours. All the while, Jacob, no idea that he is in the grip of God's unrelenting grace. Adrenaline pumping, slapping, spitting, sweating. This is, this is a, a, a really interesting scene. Jacob can't seem to work himself loose. By the end, we're wondering who's holding on to who. <laughs> right? Who's continuing the fight and for what purpose? All of this paints this incredible picture for us of the unrelenting grace of God. Look with me at verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. All night they wrestle, they fight. You would imagine that there are moments of like reprieve within the battle, right? That you're, you you wrestle and you kind of like, okay, we'll stop. Anybody wrestler in here? Like done wrestling sport, wrestling before? Not like um, like off the top rope, but more like legit, <laughs> like not back alley bare knuckle wrestling, like <laughs> something more like Olympic worthy. Although you put WWE in the Olympics, that would be incredible, right? That would be, that would be incredible. We had to get this picture of this fight taking place. And and as they are laboring through the night, and it just continues on, there are moments where where Jacob, we would imagine, goes goes limp, right? He just catches his breath, right? And then, like, all his might, like, he just goes hard for another 30 seconds, and then he stops, right? And he catches his breath. 
Jacob is undoubtedly exhausted. And then with a single touch, verse 25, this assailant throws his hip out of socket. Saying in verse 26, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. At this point, Jacob is, we can infer this by his, his request, sensing the divine nature of his assailant. Right? His, his effortless dislocation of his hip likely cemented this theory that had been brewing within Jacob for some time. In response, Jacob, continuing to cling, makes it known that he would only relinquish his grip if he receives a blessing, at which point his assailant responds. Now, this is, this is a, a really important point within what we see here, part two of Genesis chapter 32. He says, he asks him a question, what is your name? Seems simple enough, doesn't it? If Jacob was vulnerable before, he is made increasingly more vulnerable through this question. And in fact, some of the fears that Jacob found himself wrestling with before he began wrestling with this assailant are now being brought to the surface. We're talking outside of the fear that I'm going to be robbed, or the outside, outside the fear that Esau is going to somehow work his way around those who have been sent to intercept him, and now he's jumped on and wrestling Jacob in the middle of the night. We're talking about all of Jacob's of fear and, and insecurity, right? Consideration and contemplation of who. He is and what he has done. Jacob is brought to his most vulnerable position as he is asked to reveal his character by saying his name. Now get this. There's an element of this that is lost on you and I in our cultural context. We know that our names have meaning. Perhaps we even know what your name means. Anybody? You know what your name means? We may know what our names mean, but we don't necessarily place the same weight on those meanings as those in Jacob's day would have. For Jacob to answer the question that was presented to him in verse 27, it would require Jacob to confess his guilt. Jacob rightly responds, verse 27, my name is, is what? My name is Jacob. And in a single word, in a single word, Jacob unloads and takes ownership of a lifetime of sin. What does Jacob mean? Well, we know if we, if we remember back, what does it mean? We're introduced to Jacob and Esau. In their mother's womb, Jacob means heel grabber. Jacob means deceiver. Jacob is owning his identity as he shares his name with this, with this faceless assailant that has now become audible. Before I passed through my mother's womb, I was hustling to get ahead. 
I'm Jacob. Right? I, I willingly took part in my mother's plan, leveraging my father's poor health to capture my brother's birthright. My name is Jacob. Cheating Esau, not once, but twice. My name is Jacob. And I, Jacob, am a fraud. All that with a name. Jacob gets this. And Jacob knows this. Jacob feels this. And now he's, he's putting it out there. And all the things I was, I was wrestling with and been wrestling with earlier on, they are, now being, they are now being brought to the surface. All in response to this being captured by God's unrelenting grace. Do we notice how it's God's unrelenting grace that brings Jacob into this position of confession? Right? He's, he's taken hold of him. He has allowed himself to, to grapple with Jacob through the evening hours on until like the day beginning to, to like come about. He dislocates Jacob's hip, displaying and exercising strength and power. And then he, he permits Jacob to just unload this as he asks him, his name. This is a response to God's unrelenting grace. It brings Jacob to this position. Verse 28, we're shifting gears a bit. We've observed God's unrelenting grace, and now in the very same thread, we see Jacob's undeniable transformation. The transition is quick because these two points are inevitably linked together. Look with me at verse 28. Don't forget God's unrelenting grace. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Verse 29. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he says, Why is it that you ask my name? And there... He blessed him. Verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Jacob clings through the evening hours. He wrestles, demanding a blessing from the Lord. And the Lord obliges. Not only that, but he changes Jacob's identity. We are brought into this realization, as we will continue to unpack for just a, a few moments in a minute, that for Jacob's entrance into the land that had been promised to take place, his identity must be changed. Right? Jacob must be made into someone who is altogether New. He is all alone, and at this point, we see a fight break out, resulting in confession and transformation. Then, verse 32. <laughs> what a strange ending to an already strange story. 
Therefore, Moses takes a moment to explain some current practices in light of what is observed through the ending of this passage. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. We see from Moses this reminder that to this day, Israelites abstain from eating the thigh muscle on the hip socket because God struck Jacob at this point crippling him before he could enter into the promised land. We see Jacob's self-sufficiency is taken from him before he's granted entrance into the kingdom, into the land. We thought, as we picked up in chapter 32, that we were observing the stripping away of material possession, which we certainly do, but it's not limited to that. Over the course of the evening, we find that that any sense of self-sufficiency that Jacob possesses, which has been a benchmark of Jacob's life up to this point, is stripped. It is taken. At that point, he's granted access to the land. And Moses says here in verse 32 that God's people from generation to generation are reminded that entrance into the land... That has been taken for them would require a strength outside of themselves. Thus, the historical practice. Whereas self sufficiency has been a major part of the story up until this point, reliance on God and His unrelenting grace would occupy the central position as they reflect back on these moments. God's gifting to Jacob and His people. This land. And over the course of generations, we will reflect back on this event and we will remember that it is a result of God's unrelenting grace and gifting of the land to Jacob that we are able to occupy, that we are able to possess. In the same way, You and I are able to understand that we are granted access to the kingdom, not by our own strength. Jacob is not granted entrance into the land by his own strength, but he's granted entrance. Why? Well, because God is gracious, and God is kind, God is generous. And even in this scene, he is compassionate. Dislocated hip, compassionate. It changes the way that we think about grace. It changes the way that we think about compassion. In the same way, we are granted access to the kingdom, not by our own work or strength, but by God's grace. Jerry Bridges, R.I.P. Jerry Bridges is awesome. Read anything you can by Jerry Bridges. Said this in his book, Transforming Grace. He says, we are brought into God's kingdom by grace. Jacob is granted entrance into the land by God's grace. We are sanctified by grace. Jacob has been sanctified by grace. We receive both temporal and spiritual blessings by grace. Again, you see the connection here. We are motivated to obedience by grace. We are called to serve and enabled to serve. 
by grace. We are strengthened for service by grace. We receive strength to endure trials by what? Grace. And finally, we are glorified by grace. Listen to this. Read this. Right? The entire Christian life is lived under the reign of God's grace. What an incredible story. What a remarkable story of God's grace. The kingdom is not reserved for the rich. In fact, Jesus makes a point to warn the wealthy and the affluent of the dangers in equating their experience in this world with kingdom citizenship. The self-made, self-sufficient cannot inherit the kingdom. At the same time, Jesus emphasizes the struggle that we are to embrace in this life as we cling to him. We observe Jacob clinging here in Genesis chapter 32, contending for the faith and running the race in pursuit of the blessing. That is Jesus himself. What is the blessing? Who is the blessing? It is Jesus. If you desire kingdom citizenship, Know this. Know that the requirement is both unimaginably simple and incomprehensibly difficult. That seems like a strange paradigm, doesn't it? Citizenship and entrance into requires that we cast aside our self-sufficiency. And Acts 13, believe in the Lord Jesus. Through this, we are forced to acknowledge that separation is not limited to Jacob's story, but it extends on into ours. We identify with Jacob's sin and dependency. We identify with Jacob's sin and deception. We relate with his tendency toward self-sufficiency. In Luke chapter 18, verse 17, Jesus tells his followers, we're making a New Testament connection here, that only those who receive the kingdom of God like a child will enter in. Displaying, like Jacob, both dependence and persistence. If you understand, uh, if you have children, you understand what this looks like. Our cry is quite simple. Here it is. Our, our cry is Christ. Our plea is Christ. Our strength is Christ. Our hope is Christ. You and I are left to cling, but to Christ. So we say along with Jacob, man, I cannot let go. Right? I cannot let go. I, I will not let go because you are our only hope for blessing. We cling with all that we are only to realize, now we're connecting back to Genesis 32 here, that in less than a chapter, having observed Jacob's failure yet again, we begin to realize that our blessing has been dependent on his clinging to us the whole time. In this story, who is clinging to who? Like, who is, who is fighting with who? And who is fighting for who? I think that's a question that's, like, really 
um, worthy of our consideration. Who is to condemn? Right? This whole story, while certainly an encouragement to you and I to hold to Christ, is about His strength and holding to us from beginning to end. This is who God is, and this is what He does. God's unrelenting grace producing necessary transformation for citizenship in this new land. We observe it in the life of Jacob, and we observe it in the lives of you and I this morning. I want to close with this. Consideration as we prepare to come to the table. I want us to think about this as we come to the table as God's people this morning. To take the bread and the cup. There are those of us who have stories that mirror Abraham and Isaac. Yielding to God at the start of his call. And then... There are those of us whose story much more resembles Jacob's. Struggling with God. Confessing outwardly this desire to be a part of His plan while inwardly working on our own means towards a specific end. Until God, in His grace, makes our weakness clear. Resulting in undeniable transformation. And so as we come to the table today, the question that we are left considering is who in this story, this much bigger story, are we left to identify with? And how does God, in his grace and kindness and compassion bring us into this realization that as we say in the beginning, all we need in Christ, we find. All in need, all we need in Christ, we find. This is the realization that we are, that we are brought to. The entrance into the kingdom, that, that um, citizenship into the kingdom rests entirely upon the work of Jesus and our surrendering of this false notion of self-sufficiency. Cast aside that weight. <laughs> okay? Throw down that weight. Know that it is, it is not by the works or labors of our hands that we enter into, but it is a result of the divine transformation that God brings about through the person and work of Christ. As His Spirit opens our, eye, opens our eyes to understand our need. This is where we are, and this is our consideration as we come to the table today. So let's pray, and then we'll come and take the bread and the cup, and we'll sing. We have much to sing about today as we consider the unrelenting grace of God and the undeniable transformation that He brings about in our lives. What does that look like for you? Consider this as we come to the table.